Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Ecclesiastes 3. A little house cleaning first. I was away last week, and we buried my mom, and Steve was kind enough to stand here in the pulpit for us. But unfortunately, due to user error, that user being me, there was no recording of that Wednesday night. So I appreciate all of you that were here to support Steve, but there was no recording of it. So that's why there was no update on the website. Speaking of website, two weeks ago, I said that Solomon, who is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, as he was describing that he had gone the way of the Stoic and the way of the Epicurean, I said he really indulged his flesh in every way possible, that he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. And uh, people from the internet caught me on that one and wrote to me almost immediately and said, no, no, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And of course, they're correct. And it is always my goal to say what the Bible says. But I misspoke and I never get away with anything. So I misspoke and people called me out on it. So I appreciate them keeping me honest. Now, are you in Ecclesiastes 3? Yes. Okay, keep your finger there and turn to Philippians 4. I have contended for many, many years, both theologically and just experientially in this lifetime, that the most difficult and perhaps the most elusive of all human qualities to attain is genuine contentment, reaching the point where you're actually satisfied with how your life is going. The decisions that God has made for you, the things that he has given you, the place that he has placed you, your lot in life, as Solomon is going to call it tonight, all of that being handed to you by God means that God has sovereignly decided that that's what your life is going to be like. And the difficult part for us is to accept that as our lot in life and even go beyond that to the point where we can say, I'm content with my lot in life. I can speak for only myself, but uh, boy, that was hard and elusive for me. I had to get through the vast majority of my years before I reached the point of understanding my own necessary contentment. And I did reach it. I did reach the point of being content. At least I thought so. And then stuff happened. And as the circumstances of life happen, we're very quick to say, why me, and why this, and why is this happening, and why now, and why would God do this to me? And once again, we become malcontents. Now, the reason that we're starting in the book of Philippians is because Paul talks about contentment, and then that's really going to be the theme 
of the next portion of what we're going to read in the book of Ecclesiastes. But let me start with some groundwork for contentment. The only way that you can reach genuine contentment in this life is if you know for certain that God is indeed absolutely sovereign. It's only when you reach the point of knowing I'm like this and I'm here and this is happening to me and I'm going through this because this is what God has deigned for me. Only then can you say, because it's come from God, I'm going to be content. Now, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Paul is writing to the Philippians, not the Corinthians. He wrote them too. He did write to them. He is writing to the Philippians and he is saying, I've had it difficult. I know what it is both to be abased and to abound. In other words, I know what it is to be poor. I know what it is to be rich. He says, I know what it is to be hungry. I know what it is to suffer lack. I mean, after all, you're talking about a guy who had been beaten, 39 lashes on several different occasions, shipwrecked, a day and a night in the deep, in prison often, having to run for his life often. This is a guy who knows how difficult life can be. All I'm getting at is if anybody wanted to complain, Paul has a pretty good list of complaints. And Paul suffered all those things, and yet he's going to say to the Philippians, even though I've been through abounding and I've been through lack, I've been through hunger, I've been through being filled, even though I know good days and I know bad days, what I've found is to be content. And the only way you can be content in the midst of that kind of suffering is to understand that the suffering comes from God and is ultimately for your good and for his glory. Once you see it through those eyes, you can endure the suffering. So here's what Paul writes. Starting at verse 11 of chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, not Corinthians. Well, I can't start there. The book of Philippians is often called the joy letter because the Philippians had sent an offering to Paul who was in prison at the time. So he didn't really need the offering, but when Epaphroditus showed up with the offering, Paul wrote back and gave the letter to Epaphroditus to take back to the Philippians, and Paul is saying, thank you so much for what you did. I'm overjoyed that you have cared about me this way, but I'm not overjoyed because I had want. I'm overjoyed because you chose to give to me. So let's start at verse 10 then. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Is that a remarkable statement? Whatever my circumstances, he's in prison at the time. He's already been through the beatings. And he writes to them and says, I've learned how to be content. Now, he learned that through the combination of sound doctrine and understanding the absolute sovereignty of God, but also through the circumstances that he was forced to go through. That combination of experience in life 
and knowledge theologically of the sovereignty of God will bring you to a place of contentment. Remember what we read this past Sunday, that the struggles, the sufferings of life, the trials of life produce patience, and that patience produces triedness, and that triedness produces hope, and hope does not make ashamed. So that is the process that God apparently uses. Certainly Paul writes that, that the process of bringing us to hope and to contentment includes difficulties along the way, because the difficulties cause us to learn how to endure difficulties. And then we're able to be content so that when we're going through troubles, when we're going through difficulties, we can know that God sovereignly has our best interest at heart. Therefore, we can get through it. Now, having said that, let me add a little caveat. Because some of the most difficult things that I've seen people struggle with in this lifetime, especially where their faith is concerned, is not the troubles of life. The troubles of life, the difficulties of life, usually do drive people to their knees. The troubles of life usually cause people to cry out to God. And God knows that. As I said it, you're all nodding at me. And if you can figure it out, God can figure it out. He knows that the quickest way to bring you to your knees and back to calling to him is to put you through trouble. So he's going to put you through those troubles in order to keep your focus on him. But I think even more difficult than that are the times when God allows you to have plenty. When you have no needs and you're doing good, bluebird of happiness on your shoulders, all rainbows and kumbaya, life is going good for you. That's when you're prone to forget God. That's when you're prone to start thinking self-made man. That's when you're prone to start thinking life is good and uh, God might be up there somewhere, but if he is or if he isn't, I don't really need him because my life is good. Eat, drink, be merry. I got lots of grain in my barns. I'm going to have to build bigger barns. Everything's fine in my life. Well, that's one of the difficulties of life. That's one of those things that will drive you away from genuine dependence on God. And you need to be dependent on God. So that's why Paul would say, I know how to be abased, but I also know how to abound. I know how to suffer lack, but I also know how to be full. And so he knew how to keep his focus on Christ and on the things of God, despite his circumstances, good or bad, because both the good and the bad circumstances of life can get in the way of your commitment to God. So Paul writes, we really are in the book of Ecclesiastes, I promise you, we'll we'll get there in a moment. This is all introduction and uh, it doesn't count against my time. It never does. It really never does. So. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled, which means being full and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need or suffering lack. So he says there's a secret to that. And I have discovered this secret to genuine contentment 
when things are going well and when things are going bad. And the secret is, verse 13, I can do all those things through him that strengthens me. By keeping his focus on Christ, he can get through the positives and the negatives. And in both those things, keep his mind and his heart focused where they ought to be. Now, is it worth pointing out for the people who have the t-shirts that say, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me, that that's not the point of that verse? Because usually when people wear that t-shirt, they're saying, you know, I can accomplish great things through Christ with strength. I can tear phone books. I can lift weights. I can jump off buildings. I can run faster and jump higher because Christ strengthens me. That's not the context. The context is I know how to suffer lack. I know how to abound. And the secret is to keep my focus on Christ who strengthens me. And because he strengthens me in the lack and in the plenty, I can then be content regardless of my circumstances. So it's not a boast on Paul's part. It's not a big braggadocious moment. Oh, I can do everything through Christ. I shipwreck me. I'm fine. Put me in jail. I don't care. No, instead, he's saying, I've learned to be content in it because Christ gives me the strength to endure the good and the bad. Make sense? Okay, with that. That be the second time that I've ever had that, heard that verse quoted in its context. Isn't it amazing how often it's misquoted? Yes. Yeah. Ecclesiastes 3, turn there. Two weeks ago. We stopped around verse 13. We're going to back up to about verse 11. As you know, chapter 3 begins with, there is an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven. We went through those two weeks ago, and I said, this is a declaration of absolute sovereignty. Because if, in fact, there is a purpose and a time for everything that happens under the sun, under heaven, if, in fact, there's purpose to all of it, then it has to be according to somebody's purpose. And it's certainly not according to my purpose, because if it was up to me, I would never struggle. I would never suffer. I'd be taller, and I'd have a big shock of hair. Long blonde hair. I'd be younger and I'd be much more fun at parties. I, I, if, if it were up to me, I would have a whole lot more control of my life. But the reality is, as I stated a couple of weeks ago, the terrible things that ever happened in my life all caught me broadside. I didn't see them coming. And yet the good things that ever happened in my life happened despite me. They just, they just, happened and I, I just happened to be there when it occurred so I can conclude from the good and the bad that I'm not in control but if all that good and all that bad happened according to purpose and it's not my purpose then whose purpose is it it has to be God's purpose because he has assigned a time and a purpose to everything and then Solomon goes through the trouble of saying there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant. There's a time to uproot what's planted. There's a time to kill and to heal. There's a time to tear down. There's a time to build up. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to throw stones. There's a time to gather stones. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to shun embracing. There's a time to search. There's a time to give up on what's lost. There's a time to keep and there's a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. There's a time to be silent 
and there's a time to speak, and there's a time to love, and there's a time to hate. There's a time for war, and there's a time for peace. In other words, what Solomon is doing in that list is trying to show you a time for everything, all these various different things, all these things from a time to love and a time to hate all the way down to throwing stones away or collecting stones. In other words, from the most minute to the most important, there's a time and a purpose to absolutely everything under God's heaven. So then he can say, starting in verse 11, God has made everything appropriate in its time. So everything that occurs occurred because it's time for that to occur. And that is an absolutely sovereign God. That is a God who can say, yes, that's going to happen, but it's not going to happen until I'm ready for it to happen. Let's check this for just a moment. Do you remember at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus and the apostles had been talking for 40 days about the kingdom. And then the apostles say to Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now? You're going to do it now? Is now when? And Jesus' answer is, it's not for you to know. The epochs, the kairos, the times, the seasons that God places under his own dominion, in his own hand. In other words, the kingdom will be restored to Israel when it's time. It's not time yet. How often did Jesus during his ministry say even to his brethren when they said, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and do some miracles? Because no one who wants to be widely known keeps himself as secret as you do. Why don't you go up there and show off? And he says, your time is always, but my time is not yet. Why? Because he had a particular time that he had to die on a particular Passover on a particular year. The Gospels also say that in the fullness of time, Christ came. I mean, why didn't Christ come the minute Adam and Eve fell? As soon as Adam and Eve fell, as soon as there was a sinner, Christ could have come to the earth. Why did thousands of years pass before Jesus came and made that sacrifice? And why, before he came and made that sacrifice, was God dealing with the Israelites through the law to prove over those 1,400 years that human beings just can't keep the law? Why did it work out that way? Wouldn't it have been better? Wouldn't it have been easier? Wouldn't it have been more merciful for Christ to come immediately and start saving people and just ignore that whole law period? That's logical to me. That's not the way God does things. He's not into easy. No, no way. Everything that happened in time happened according to God's plan for time and happened according to the time that God planned it to occur. How often have you heard me say, God invented time so that everything wouldn't happen all at once. He stretched everything out over the course of time. But everything that happens is still happening under his domain and in his universe. And he is still adjudicating when it happens. And there's a time and a purpose for everything. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. In other words, you might know some stuff about God, 
right here and right now. You might know some stuff about God and his dealings in your life while you're on the planet. But how many of you actually know the secret counsel of God when he and Christ came to the covenant, the agreement that Christ was going to come to the earth and die for all those that God was going to give him? Were any of you present for that conversation? No. Okay, that's something in the past that you don't know. In the eons of God, you don't know it. How many of you know what the thunder said in the book of Revelation? None of us, none of us know that. That's a future thing. And none of us know that. So Solomon said, God places eternity in our hearts. We have that hope. We have that confidence. We have that looking forward to the eternity of God. But he doesn't tell us everything. He tells us as much as we need to know the same way that he puts us through the experiences that we need to go through because he is shaping us, forming us, and teaching us each individually by the things that he teaches us, the things that he shows us, the things that he allows us to know, and the things that we go through. That's a very specific and a very individual and personal God. Many, many years ago, my mom was taking nursing courses at the University of Houston she came home one day, and she was talking to my dad. I think I was 12, 13. And I just always remembered this question because through my life, I have pondered this question over and over. I have an answer for her now, but the question one of her professors asked was, do you believe that God is a personal God? Because he had a feeling that God was sort of the great unmoved mover, you know, that he put everything into motion and then sort of sat back and watched what people would do with what he gave them. Or do you believe that God is a personal God? Well, as you go through the Bible, you see that he's so very personal that he could say things like, you're written on the palm of my hands. Or he could say, I wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Look, if he's written your name down since before the foundation of the world, that's really personal. And if he is taking personal responsibility for getting you to the eternity that he has promised you, then he's going to do that for you personally, for you individually. Which means that the things you go through don't have to be the things Tom goes through. Because Tom is different than you. Much more hard-headed, hard to get along with. Yeah, I know. It's sad. It's <laughs> we still love <laughs> my point being God who is absolutely omnipotent omnipresent can be everywhere at once and has all the power who has all the knowledge can deal with you as an individual in a way different than he deals with other individuals so as a consequence I know that there is nothing better verse 12 for human beings than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. That is the gift from God. Look at verse 22. He says something very similar. And I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot in life. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? In other words, when your life's over, your life's over. You're not going to see what's coming. And you don't know what happened before you got here. The only thing we've learned from history is that we've learned nothing from history. And so all you've got is right here, 
right now, dealing with God individually right here, right now. And as a consequence, whatever work he gives you to do, enjoy that work. Whatever food he gives you to eat, enjoy that food. Whatever he gives you to drink, enjoy that drink. The best you can do, according to Solomon, is recognize that God is in control of everything. Therefore, God has given you this lot in life. Be happy in it. Be content with it. Reach the point of knowing this is God's will for my life right here and right now. I've used a phrase for many, many years. Boy, I've said that a lot tonight, haven't I? Apparently, I've been talking for too long, 18 years, and I'm done. Now I'm just repeating myself. But, you know, people do, and I watch them, and it drives me crazy, that people will beat their heads against the brick wall of God's sovereignty. And God's not going to change just because you're fed up, just because you're tired of it, just because you shake your fist at him and say, I I won't have this man rule over me. Just because you want your lot in life to be different than your lot in life is, it's still going to be your lot in life. How many of you here have ever tried to change anything significant about yourself? Did it work? No. No, it never works. So do you get the point here? Do you get what Solomon is driving at? That life just has a built-in contentment that is based on the knowledge of God's sovereignty and the recognition that this is your lot in life that he has assigned to you. Therefore, not only be content with your lot in life, but be happy with what he's given you. We, especially here in America, I saw your hand, I'll get right to you. We, especially here in America, are blessed beyond belief. There are only two things in the Bible that God promises over and over and over again. Do you know what it is? Food and raiment. raiment. He even says, having food and raiment, be content. Having food and raiment, I've done what I said I would do for you. If you have something to eat, something to wear, you're good. How many of you in this room have more than food and raiment? That's everybody. Everybody in this room has way more than food and raiment. God did not promise you a car or a Nintendo or a house or just everything. A TV, computers, extra changes of clothes, closets full of clothes, boxes full of clothes in the closets full of clothes. Some people these days have to have a storage facility because they have so much extra stuff. God never promised you that. <laughs> oh, did I hit a nerve? <laughs> oh, Ming kind of laughed a little hard at that one, huh? Just look at me. <laughs> <laughs> We're just so, so, so very, very, very blessed, and yet we spend so much of our life unhappy with our lot in life. So when we sit down to eat, we thank God, and we should be happy for the food he set in front of us. When we drink, when we rise, when we know our own names... When we gather together as a body, when we come to worship God, when we recognize that our eternity is built into our hearts by God, that should be enough to make us content and happy. Because now Solomon is going to drill down on God's absolute sovereignty and control over everything. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. That's the answer to the stop beating your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty. 
Because whatever God has done, that's it. He did it. So if he has designed this for your life, if that's how tall you're going to be, if that's what your lot in life is like, you can't change that. Jesus said it. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one year to his life or one cubit to his stature? No, you, you can't change anything. None of you can change any significant element of your life. So knowing that, recognize that God is so absolutely sovereign that everything he does remains forever. That is an intrinsic quality of God, that he does not change his mind. And that, by the way, is very, very good news. Because that means that if he wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life, he never went back later and said, no, never mind, I'll just erase that. Never. What was I thinking? I thought they were going to be better than that. I don't. No, he's never changed his mind. God does whatever he does, and it's permanent because it's being done by an absolutely omnipotent, omniscient, Righteous and holy God who doesn't have to change anything he does because he doesn't make mistakes. So therefore, whatever he does remains forever and there's nothing you can add to it and there's nothing you can take from it. That's one of the reasons that the Bible says in a couple of different places, like the end of the book of Revelation, but also in the Old Testament, it says don't add to this word and don't take anything away from this word. Because if it is indeed the word of God, it's complete. It has in it what it needs to have in it. The very words that will get you from here to eternity are in it. So you don't need to shorten it. You don't need to extract from it. You don't need to eliminate things from it. You need to declare everything it says. And you shouldn't ignore any part of what it says. Because it's the very word of God. And whatever God says and whatever God does, he does it forever and nothing needs to be added to it and nothing needs to be taken from it. Let me add one more caveat to that then. If indeed God has declared since before the foundation of the world that you are his, he gives you to his son and therefore you are eternally secure, what do you got to add to that? What are you capable of adding? And what do you need to take away from that? Nothing. Don't take anything away from that. No, that is a secure statement. Because whatever God does, it's good. It's forever. And for those of you who are worried about your eternity, you should know securely that if God has chosen you since before the foundation of the world, then you're you're chosen. That's just it. And you can kick and scream and stomp and buck and say, no, I don't, no, I'm not going to be a Christian. You're going to end up a Christian. Just get used to it. You're going to end up under God's sovereign hand because God who is in control owns you. Does that make sense? Wouldn't have it any other way. Wouldn't have it any other way. You had your hand up a minute ago and I ignored you. Now what were you going to have? You went on to your next point. I just went on to my next point. Did you have something? Well, it, it occurs to me that as you were saying, be content, be happy. You're reflecting again the Philippians 4 passage earlier than what you read, where Paul is saying, as a mindset, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. I found this secret of contentment. Rejoice in the Lord always. I found this secret. 
contentment. Rejoice, contentment, rejoice. There is a correlation there where as we recognize the sovereignty of God, as we recognize the provision of God, we recognize, and here we go into Romans 1, they did not acknowledge God as God or give him thanks. Therein lies the difference. We who are content in the Lord can rejoice and can be thankful. Yeah, exactly right. Because we're knowledgeable of the fact that he's got us. Absolutely. I know that there is nothing better for men than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is a gift from God. And I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked it so that men would fear him. That doesn't mean slavish fear. That doesn't mean I'm scared of him. What it means is so that men would worship him. The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of of the Lord. The reverence of God. The recognition that he is the judge. The recognition that he can do whatever he chooses to do. There's nobody who has ever successfully objected to the judgment of God. God is nevertheless going to pour out his judgment the way he sees fit. Therefore, we ought to have reverence toward him, an appropriate fear for him, and God designed everything. That's kind of why I was trying to put it in context. God has designed everything and given a time to everything, and he did it that way specifically so that human men would fear him. We would recognize his absolute control, and therefore we would fear him. And by the way, that was human women too, just so you know. So that human beings would recognize the absolute sovereignty of God and worship him as God. Reverence him as the absolute sovereign. Get on your face in front of the one who has that kind of control. That's why God did it in such a way that he demonstrated his absolute control. He did it that way so that men would reverence him. By the way, does it sound like we're talking about a pretty sovereign God? Sure is. So far? Yeah. I had somebody write to me just a couple of weeks ago. Again, I don't know why people do this. And wrote to me and said that he, he disagreed with this, this extreme sovereignty that I teach. Extreme sovereignty. <laughs> Uh, it always confuses me when I read passages like this. I think, well, well, yeah, that's absolute sovereignty. And then when you add extreme to it, sovereign is absolute. And so what does extreme absoluteness look like? I mean, yeah, he's sovereign. There's no way around it. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There is nothing to be taken away from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has already passed by. Can you even begin to understand that kind of language? He's saying God lives outside of time. We are time-bound creatures. The things that have already occurred, we think are gone. 
And yet, here Solomon says, God still requires those things. And in the mind of God, in the presence of God, those things that used to be still are. Those things that haven't occurred yet are already past. God can look at all of human life in one fell swoop. The entirety of his creation is before him all the time. That's why he can set a particular time and purpose to everything that occurs. Because it's all in front of him at all times. If I can use the word times. That which is, has already been, and that which will be, has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. And furthermore, I have seen under the sun, or I have seen in this lifetime, that in the place of justice, there's wickedness. Okay, so now what has happened is, starting at verse 16, he's going to start creating another one of these repetitive inclusios that he does in his book. All an inclusio is, it's a literary term that means that he's going to use phrases like brackets and then describe a subject under those brackets. And the bracket is that phrase, under the sun. And what it means is, in this lifetime, on this planet, I have seen these things happen. And what he's going to describe for the remainder of this chapter and the beginning of the next chapter, he's going to describe the evil of men despite the fact that God is completely in charge. And he's going to give bad reasons, fallacious reasons, for why people try to accumulate and achieve in this lifetime, and that it all brings them to unhappiness. It all brings them to boxing with the wind. It all brings them to vanity of vanities. So having declared that everything is under God's hand, naturally he assumes somebody's going to say, but wait a minute, if everything is under God's hand, then why do bad things still happen? And people still ask that question to this very day. Very popular, very common question you can find all over the internet. The answer to it is, well, God is so sovereign that he can work through the evil of men and still accomplish his will, and that those good things and those bad things that occur are still under his sovereign hand, and that is ultimately going to be Solomon's answer. I know that everything that God does remains forever. He's already declared that God is absolutely sovereign, and God works it out that way so that men would fear him. He's in charge of things that were and things that are going to be. He's in charge of bringing up the things that have already passed by. And then verse 16, before you say it, furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice, there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. We would all agree to that. You can look around the planet right now. And you can see that even though there's some good in the world, there's plenty of wicked going on. There's plenty of stuff that makes you scratch your head and say, how could an absolutely sovereign God allow this? Very common argument among the atheists. They say, well, if God was all good, all holy, all loving, and all powerful, then why do we have masses of people who die in terrible accidents? Why are all these babies being aborted? Why is there all this horror that goes on? Why is 
Why are so many children sick? Why, why does that all happen in a world if a perfectly good and holy God is absolutely powerful over that world? Why is there so much evil in the world? They use it as an argument for there. See, there can't be a God. Because if there was a good, holy, righteous God, this wouldn't happen. That's what Solomon's addressing here. And saying, sure, sure, God's sovereign and wickedness goes on in the world. I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, and then look at what Solomon does. He goes right back to God's sovereignty for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. In other words, the good that happens and the bad that happens, the righteousness that occurs and the evil that occurs nevertheless occurs under the hand of an absolutely sovereign God. There's a time and a purpose for everything. You know, I said a few minutes ago, why didn't Jesus appear as soon as man sinned? God could have done it that way. God could have wiped out Adam and Eve instantly, started again with two more people. I mean, he made the first two people out of the dust of the ground and out of a rib, so let's just do that again. There's lots of dirt. I can make more dirty people. I I can just rev up some more folks. Why didn't he do that? Well, okay, Satan's in the garden. Satan tempts Eve. Eve tempts her husband. Humankind falls. Why didn't God immediately put Satan in the abyss? Because you look into the book of Revelation, you find out that he does do that. Eventually, he does do it. Why didn't he do it immediately? Why didn't he let good people grow up without temptation and sin? Why didn't he wipe out the first sinners immediately as soon as they sinned? Why didn't he just fix everything the minute it happened? Because it has to serve his purpose, or else he wouldn't have done it. Do you understand what I'm saying? He wouldn't let sin continue. He wouldn't let evil continue in his world if it wasn't his purpose, if it didn't serve his purpose, if it wasn't along with the function of God for this planet at this time. He would have wiped it out instantly, started over again. But he didn't, and because he's sovereign and infinitely wise, that means that it has a purpose and a time and everything that Solomon is saying. He's just said, I've seen there's plenty of evil where there should be justice, where there should be righteousness. Now, remember, he's a king as he's writing this. So it's very important that he is both righteous and that he judges good judgments. That there is justice behind the king. That there is righteousness behind the adjudications of the king. And he has said, and nevertheless, even though I see justice and righteousness, there's still wickedness going on. But that doesn't undermine his argument. It, in fact, plays into his argument, which is why he could say, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. Got it? It's a brilliant argument. In other words, it undermines the atheist argument completely. And the word of God already takes into account that because there's sin in the world, there's wickedness in the world. But even that sin and that wickedness ultimately serves the purpose of God, who has a larger purpose to everything.
Look, if there was no sin and no wickedness in the world, would anybody have killed Jesus? No. Okay, so Jesus died so that we could be saved. That's a good thing. He was killed by really evil men. That's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. You with wicked hands slew the prince of life. Okay, it's a really wicked thing they did because they're evil and they're wicked. And they did exactly what God ordained they would do, which Luke also writes in the book of Acts, that Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles were gathered at Jerusalem to do whatever your hand destined to be done. So God can work despite the wickedness of human beings. God can make the wickedness of human beings serve his ultimate purpose. And you see that time and time again in the Bible. Look at the story of Joseph. I mean, his brothers threw him in a pit and convinced dad that he was dead by showing his multicolored coat with blood on it. it. said, your son's dead. Okay, that's just wicked. Dad loves his son. Let's go back and tell dad that the son is dead. That's just wicked. So then Joseph ends up being sold into slavery, and then he goes into Potiphar's house, and then Potiphar's wife says, come lay with me. He refuses because he's a good guy. She pulls his cloak off, screams rape. He's put in prison. That's wicked, right? It's from prison interpreting dreams that he ends up in the very council room of Pharaoh. And he ends up interpreting the dream and Pharaoh makes him the second ruler in all of Egypt. Years later, his own brothers, because there's a famine in Jerusalem, his brothers have to come stand before him. And when he reveals himself to them, which, man, I would have loved to be there. I just, I want to be there for that moment. Because, you know, he's sitting there on the throne, and he's got the Egyptian headdress, and he's got the Egyptian makeup going, and they don't know they're standing in front of their brother who they claim was dead and then he reveals himself to them and it says they were all so scared because they were sure that he was going to kill them because he had that kind of power now he had that kind of authority and if he had been a man like any of us he'd be like hey it's me joseph you're dead or at least you're spending the next 10 years in prison because i spent some years in a pit so And no, what does Joseph say? It's one of the most remarkable things you're going to find in the Old Testament. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To bring about this present result that many are going to be saved alive. In other words, God knew that there was going to be a famine in Israel. And so years and years in advance... He used the wickedness of the brothers to put Joseph in a pit and into prison so that he could become second only to Pharaoh, so that he could keep the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive because they had the promises that had to be fulfilled. And so Joseph recognized that even though you wicked boys did this to me, meaning it to be wicked, nevertheless, God used it for this ultimate good. Okay, that's absolute sovereignty. That's my whole point. The whole point of bringing up that story is to say exactly what Solomon is saying here. Yes, there's wickedness in the world, but that doesn't undermine the sovereignty argument, and that doesn't undermine the God argument. 
God can still exist in absolutely sovereign fashion despite the evil and the wickedness of this world, and he can still bring about his ultimate good regardless of it. I mean, what was the ultimate good of Adam and Eve rebelling against him? Sending a savior. Well, that's pretty good. I mean, it's like take the worst sin, and it results in the best news. We're going to see that in the book of Romans. We're going to see that the first man, Adam, because of his sin, everybody dies. That's really bad news. That's really wicked. And that leads to Christ, the new Adam, the second Adam. And everybody in him lives eternally. That's really good news. So you can't have the really good news part without having the really evil part first. So do you see how our concepts of wickedness and evil are very different than God's concept of wickedness and evil and how it serves his ultimate purpose. He's so much bigger than us. He's so much smarter than us. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts above our thoughts, his ways above our ways, so that when we see the evil of this world, we go, man, there's just wickedness. What are we going to do about it? He sees the wickedness of this world and says, it's all part of my plan. I'm working good here. All right, let's keep going. Verse 17, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them or tried them in order for them to see that they are but beasts, animals, brute beasts. He says, that's why God takes us through all this, so that we don't start getting too full of ourselves. So we don't start thinking that we're really something. Instead, we have to recognize that deep down in us, we're just no good. And that if you really account our flesh, our breath, our lifespan, we're like animals. Because everything that happens to us, the air we breathe, the food we eat, the fact that we live, the way we breathe, animals do that too. So God puts us through these trials and he tries every man in order to demonstrate to us that were it not for the infusion of God in his spirit, we'd be no different than the rest of the animals. So now Solomon's going to make that comparison. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, They all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, because everything is vanity. So without God in the equation, there's no real intrinsic value difference between cattle and us. We live here for a while, we eat for a while, we breathe for a while, and then we die. So do they. What's the difference? The difference has to be God. And they all go to the same place, animals and people. Verse 20 says, they all go to the same place. They all came up from the dust and they all returned to the dust. Now in verse 21, the particular Hebrew word that's being used here is ruash. It's the word that means breath, but it also means the spirit. It's the word that is used in the book of Genesis to say that the spirit of God entered into the man when God formed the man. 
And so I think what Solomon is getting at here when he says, who knows, the NASB says, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth. He's talking about the spirit. And so now he's asking the question that is such a common question. What happens to animals when they die? My daughter is very concerned about that. She asks me frequently, will there be animals in heaven? And I tell her, well, if we're coming back on horseback, I know there's at least horses, so there you go. But doggies and kitties and bunnies, and what, what happens to the animals? And so Solomon takes that question and says, we are so much like brute beasts, who can really say definitively that the spirit of man ascends upward and the spirit of animals descends downward into the earth? We don't really know. Does anybody know the answer to that? Does anybody know if any animals at all, do all animals, does every animal when they die, does their spirit, the spirit of life that was within them, does that spirit descend back into the earth? Does it disappear? What, what happens there? We don't know. And so Solomon says, we don't know whether men ascend up and animals descend down. And I have seen, since we don't know much of anything, and I have seen that nothing is better than that a man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot in life. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? You don't know what happened before. You don't know what's going to happen later. You have no control over human history. You can be quickly felled by a little virus that you can't even see without a microscope. You are completely and utterly not in control. God is completely in control, so much so that he gives time and purpose to absolutely everything that happens under his heaven. Therefore, if you know that, be content. Take enjoyment in the things that he gives you. Now, there is a version of Christianity out there that says that if you have a bunch of stuff, too much stuff, of course, nobody ever defines what too much is, but if you have too much stuff and you're Christian and you know that there are poor people in the world, that you ought to at very least feel really guilty for how much you have. Solomon was writing from the perspective of pretty much the richest man in the Middle East at the time, the most powerful king. He had plenty of stuff. And instead, the conclusion he came to is, whatever your lot in life is and whatever God has given you, be thankful for it and enjoy it. Whatever God has determined for you, he determined that that's what you could handle. That's what wouldn't destroy you. You know, my daughter said earlier she hadn't won the lottery. I figured out fairly recently why it is that I've never won the lottery. Turns out it's because I've never bought a ticket. Um, <laughs> the lottery can destroy people. <clears throat> Having too much all of a sudden can wreck people. So God knows how much you can handle. He knows how much you can take. And whatever you have at any point, at any moment, at any time in life, whatever you have is what he felt was appropriate for you at this moment. Therefore, be content. And if you're content, be happy and be thankful. And be glad that God would allow you what you do have. Do you get the idea? Yep. Okay. Next week, we'll continue in chapter 4, and he will continue to say, 
Men in their greed are inspired to do all kinds of things, but those are wrong motivations for having things. The right motivation is the recognition that God has given it to you, so enjoy your lot in life. But to be greedy and to try to amass more and assemble more, there are all kinds of wicked motivations for why men do that. And Solomon's going to lay out those differences and say that all those wicked motivations are vanity, striving against the wind. All right, any questions? Any comments? Would anybody like to come up and tap dance? Oh, I saw your hand. Okay, you'd like to come up and tap dance. So that's. I think so. <laughs> My tap dancing days are over. I'm going to say that uh, Horatio Spofford set a pretty good example for contentment. And he wrote a hymn that, that I can't get through without crying, frankly. It is well with my soul. And you can only say it's well with your soul if you know who's in charge. Absolutely. That's right. Well, all right then. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Robert, say goodbye to yourself. I did. Okay. Alex, say goodbye to yourself. You did. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.